this morning, I have the privilege of continuing a series that we started last week, a series that we're calling Fierce Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you're like me and you grew up in an environment where you heard a lot about Jesus, or maybe you grew up in an environment where you didn't hear a lot about Jesus. Uh, One of the perks of being a pastor's kid was that I just heard a lot of stories about Jesus growing up, since I can remember. And the thing I know for sure is the picture that was most often painted of Jesus was a picture of a really soft and super safe uh, Jesus, you know, the Jesus who would never hurt a fly, it always spoke in, in very tender monotones and his volume never went above a certain decibel unless he was preaching uh, the kingdom of God. That was the picture of Jesus painted um, for me. And I get it, to be honest. Uh, I think in many ways to make Jesus um, accessible uh, to all folks, we, we felt the need to really just paint um, a portrait of him uh, that was very tender, very soft, very safe. Now, the truth is, if you study the Bible, the Bible so often paints Jesus as incredibly tender and incredibly compassionate. But that's not all the Bible portrays him to be. He's not just tender. The Bible portrays him as fierce. In fact, if you study the scriptures at, at, a, at a certain occasion, it portrays Jesus as dressed for war and riding a horse and a sword coming out of his mouth. Doesn't that just make you want to pinch his cheeks? Um, it, it, it describes Jesus as the lion of Judah. I got a little cute family pet. No, not so much. And I'm just saying just because Jesus wrapped himself in human flesh around Christmas should not lure us into only painting a portrait of him that's like Buddy the Elf just skipping wherever he goes and smiling because it's his favorite. And I think when we do that, we actually miss out on a broader and more beautiful picture of who he really is. Yes, he was tender, but he was fierce. Yes, he was gentle, but he was also a warrior. And I think if we miss the fuller picture of Jesus, we miss out on living more fully in light of who he is and um, so in this series, our desire is just to, to be introduced to the other side of Jesus, the often left outside of Jesus that is a part of who he is. And this morning, we're going to look at a story that paints him in a more fierce light, if you will. And um, man, once again, I just I so envy those of you who may be. Uh, hearing or reading this story for the first time. I wish I could be in your shoes um, again, but I'm going to try even as I reread it to read it like I'm reading it for the first time. And this story is a little bit crazy. Um, You have been warned. Now, let me just give a little bit of context um, of what's going on. Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the final time. Uh, He's not going to leave. Uh, He is four days away from being executed, from giving his life on um, the Roman cross. 
But he's come into Jerusalem, and on the Monday before the Friday of his execution, he makes a visit to the temple, and the following ensues. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Um, Brace yourself. It's just two verses, but it's a little bit crazy, especially if you've never read this before. And if you have, pretend you haven't. We'll have the verses up here on the screen uh, if you don't have a copy of um, the Bible or you're just too lazy to turn. But here it is, uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned their tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, poor doves. It is written, he said to them in a very tender monotone voice. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. I'm going to read that one more time. And again, like I've never read it before, because this is crazy. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. I know. He flips. I don't know if you've ever read this story. He flips. Jesus um, walks up the staircase uh, at the southern end of the temple mound. And uh, when he does, he enters this open um, courtyard area. This beautiful area, by the way, of the temple uh, that had, you know, four rows of 40 pillars that adorned it. This really beautiful um, place. And uh, he entered into the sound of hyperactivity. The place was packed and buzzing. It always was a chaotic scene. And um, when Jesus gets there, he sees these uh, temple vendors lining that courtyard, buying and, and selling different things. And he flips. Literally, right? He flips uh, their tables. He gets so furious and uh, he starts turning over their benches. At some point, it says he even releases some doves. You know, these things go uh, flying um, over the place. He makes an absolute chaotic mess in the temple on that Monday. And then (laughs) he chases them out. Of the temple. Now, the word um, that is used to describe Jesus driving them out is a word uh, that has two different senses to it. Um, One sense carries with it almost this idea of physical violence. Um, The other sense carries with it more this idea of um, a verbal appeal. Um, Now, it's interesting that for for years and years and years and years and years and years, um, this has been read and it's been interpreted through the lens of the physical violent approach. Like Jesus was physically violent to some degree um, with these folks versus Jesus was making um, a verbal appeal. And the reason it's been interpreted that way for the, for the large part is 
That's exactly what happened. Like, Jesus got violent with these people. In fact, this is the G version. Because I wanted to ease y'all into fierce Jesus. If you read a different account of this story, it says when Jesus got up that staircase and he looked in, in the courtyard and he saw what was happening, he made a whip. And he started taking swipes at those people. And I'm guessing he made some contact and kicked them out of church. Merry Christmas, sweet little baby Jesus. <laughs> this is awesome. Now, I don't know if I've ever told you the story of um, my, one of my best friends uh, when I was a teenager. It's a guy named James. And um, I feel like I need to make the disclaimer before I tell the story by saying I was having a, a rough day. I, I don't remember why, but I was just emotionally a little more volatile. I was upset already. I'm guessing it was over a girl. Um, I think Nanya was her name, as in Nanya business, because really that's not the point of this story. So don't worry about that. Um, but I was a little bit on the tender side. And James did something to get under my skin and I lost it, man. And I remember, and I'm sorry, kids never do this. I took a swing at him. Um, not skillful enough to make any significant contact, but enough to hit the glasses off of his face. And those things went flying off to the side and they broke. He's furious. I'm furious. We did not speak to each other for months. Um, but at some point later, I don't know what happened. Maybe I had a little dose of humility or, or coming to my senses. I went to him and I just owned it. I'm like, listen, man, I just got to say my bad. Um, now, I think you kind of deserved it, but that's beside the point. I, I, I was having a bad day, man. I was upset. I was hurt about something. I don't even know what it is. And so I kind of lost it. And I just want to apologize for what I did. And uh, I'm getting some help. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because uh, I think it is worth us starting this story by acknowledging the fact that that's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening <laughs> In this story, Jesus is not having some kind of an off day. Jesus is not having a bad day. He is four days away from his execution and he knows it. And it may be tempting to think that maybe he's a little bit emotionally volatile. Jesus is on edge. And, and don't worry about it. He's getting some help. He's going to be fine. A little anger management. And the temptation is almost to start to explain Jesus like one of our crazy uncles at Thanksgiving who drank a little too much. Jesus is not having a bad day, y'all. Jesus is being Jesus. You want to know who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. You want to know who you were just singing to a few moments ago? This is Jesus being Jesus. And I think in this series, it's part of what we want to see. That this wasn't just some freaky occasion and every now and then, whoo, Jesus had a bad day or he would say something rough or he, he, the fierce side of him would come out like almost like it's a foreign entity. Within Jesus' makeup. No, this is Jesus being 
Jesus. Because you read a story like this and don't you just feel at times like you need to defend his actions to, to explain him away. You know, almost like to give Jesus a hall pass to assure people he, he's going to be fine a little bit later on. And Jesus would say, no, I am not sorry. I wasn't having a bad day and I would do it again. This is Jesus. And the concern is, if we see him as only savior, then a scene like this will throw us a little bit like, whoa, remember that one time Jesus did something a little bit off? If we see him as only tender, then we're going to experience aspects of his character that shock our systems like, whoa, Jesus, rein it back in and be the Jesus we grew up believing. And Jesus is like, this is me. Take it or leave it, matter of fact. But this is me. The Bible teaches he's not just a little baby in a manger. He is Jesus, the judge. And that's one of the aspects that emerges in this crazy funky story and I don't know if you've ever met Jesus the judge but listen he carries a whip and he uses it sometimes he deals fiercely with sin bringing about consequences of misery and punishment and he makes no apology for it sometimes that showed up in his ministry like here in this scene. Now I get it and I acknowledge it. This isn't the version of Jesus that's the most marketable. This isn't the most palatable version of Jesus for the masses. But this is an accurate picture of who he is. John chapter 5 verse 27 says, And he, God the Father, gave him, Jesus, authority. To execute judgment because he is the son of man. And I'm telling you, you will live your life more meaningfully and more fully if you know Jesus. Not just as a savior, but as a judge. That's who he is. If you know him, not just as tender, but as fierce. Because that's who he is. And to live with an incomplete picture of Jesus is to miss out on so much of who he really is. And I think there is a famine, by the way, of this picture of Jesus, the judge, in our time and in our churches. And it shows up in a variety of different ways. I was just thinking about this, rereading this story um, recently. Um, again, it's like, okay, real talk, because we're together, we might as well talk real, right? let's say a natural disaster happens somewhere in the world. And then some ignoramus church person gets up and starts to declare, Jesus is judging the people in that part of the world. And if you're anything like me, your response to that is like, listen, dude, Unless he told you that, excuse me, kids, shut your mouth. 
You don't know. You don't know. Excuse me, kids. But also, shut your mouth. You don't know that he's not. I'll just stand here for a second. We've gotten to the place with such a soft picture of Jesus that when something like that happens, we become defense attorneys. We've got to maintain his tender and soft image and we will say there is no way Jesus did that. There is no way he had anything to do with that. I'm like, no. Have you forgotten who he is? Now, I'm so thankful I don't have a script that is way above my pay grade when Jesus is acting in judgment and when Jesus is not. So I hope I become wiser and wiser with age. And my response is, I don't know. And unless I know, I can't tell you, yes, he did that. But nor can I tell you, no, he didn't. He may have. Here's what I know for sure. If somebody came and told you a story, Weird day at church, man. Oh, yeah, what happened? Some dude walks in and he starts whipping people and kicking them out of the church. I think it may have been Jesus. Come on. Come on. No. The devil. We must get the elders to come and exercise this demon. You would never have thought this was Jesus behaving this way if we hadn't started by reading in the Bible that Jesus came to the temple. I am telling you, we will miss out on some of the glory of who he is when we forget he is not just tender, he is fierce. When we forget he's not just savior, he is judge. And sometimes he whips people and when he does, it is brutal. question is, do you embrace Jesus, the judge? Because sometimes he judges. And the truth is, he doesn't need us to defend him. He doesn't need us to apologize for him. In fact, sometimes when we defend him and apologize for him, we distance ourselves from what he may actually be a part of. We don't know. I think it is so wrong when people get up and say, Jesus did that. You don't know, please don't say that. That's really cruel. But I think it's also cruel when we get up and say he had nothing to do with it, when he may have. Because we've refused to embrace this side and this aspect of him. What I know for sure is that Jesus is judge. How he would judge, we don't know. I think this story introduces us to the fact that he does judge, though. The question is, can we embrace that? And maybe add that to our picture of who he is. Um, I think one of the things that this story does, though, is it brings to the surface 
at least two things that we know will stir Jesus, the judge, that will invite the judge in Jesus to come out. Two things that we know will make his blood boil. And um, I don't know about you, but man, I'm curious to know what triggered Jesus, the judge, in this situation. Um, I'm curious to know what happened. By the way, um, if you happen to have a picture of Jesus in your house whooping some people, you just become my new favorite person. Can I please meet you? Uh, That's just not what we have, is it? Like, no, you're not going to paint Jesus that way. Um, But man, that would be awesome. If somebody does, please see me. Um, I will become a hugger on the spot. Um, Anyway, Um, in, in the Jewish world, there was no place on earth more sacred than the temple. There was no place on earth more significant than this place where this story is set. Um, The temple was where they came to do business with God. And the temple was where they believed God came to do business with them unlike any other place on the planet. Man, I remember the first time that I uh, visited Haiti Uh, A group of us went uh, together, and uh, man, what a trip it was. Uh, I I don't think anything could have prepared me for the shock to my system. That was uh, the lack of internet access. (laughs) We we got to Haiti, and we're staying like in a little walled-in compound, and uh, our data plans didn't translate, and there was no Wi-Fi. Yeah, just let that set in for a second. <laughs> like, like, this was true. Like there was no Wi-Fi and we were panicking a little bit. We didn't know how we would make it through uh, those next days um, like, like that. And uh, it was interesting. Like outside the compound, there was constantly the sound of these voodoo priests who were chanting and, and calling down all manner of hell and darkness. And we're in that house, and I'm sure all of us are thinking the same thing. I wonder if they have Wi-Fi. Because <laughs> we, were, we were really struggling. But don't worry, there's a great ending to this story because God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. We found out that there was an internet cafe down in the little town, the rural town in which we were living. So we just, we abandoned the children we had come to serve. And all of us made a beeline for this internet cafe and paid just unusual money uh, to use that place. Just so we could get reconnected to breath and reconnected to to life and reconnected to our families um, back home. And just so that we could, you know, get reconnected to significant things like uh, sports updates um, and such. But believe it or not, that's pretty close to accurate in describing what the temple would have been like for the Jews in the days of Jesus. The temple was like heaven's hotspot on earth. It 
it's really what it was like for them. It's not that you couldn't get a little spiritual signal here and there. But oh, if you wanted to engage God, the most concentrated connection spot was the temple. And so for that reason, people would travel hundreds of miles. They would travel for days and days and days to make pilgrimages, to make these trips, to come to the temple by the thousands. Because that's where the presence of God was strongest. That's where the activity of God was most vivid. And if you want to offer animal sacrifices for for your sins and for the sins of your families to lift the judgment of God off of your household, albeit temporarily, because then you'd have to just come back and do it again. But if you're going to lift the judgment of God by offering a sacrifice, the temple was the place. To do it. If you're going to bring an offering of thanksgiving because you thought your kid wouldn't make it through the last month and here they are, the temple would be the place where you'd come to offer your gratitude to, to God. If you wanted to experience high-speed prayer moments with other people, you would come to these prayer gatherings in the temple just believing this is where God showed up in unique ways that he didn't show up when you were by yourself at your House. It's, it's a place where all kinds of feasts and, and festivals um, were celebrated. The temple, this was the heaven hotspot. This was where heaven touched earth and the presence of God was fiber optic. Here was a problem though. Um, if you were going to make the most of that place, uh, you would need to bring with you some things that were hard to carry if you were traveling over great uh, distances. You were not able to bring what you needed to make the most of that experience and and, and make the sacrifices that you needed um, to make in that place. And um, man... Uh, how, how are you going to tell God thanks and, and give him that offering if you didn't carry it with you because it was too much to carry um, over that period of time and over that great a distance? How are you going to take care of your sin if you couldn't transport a goat or two? And now you don't want to go back home still carrying your sin, believing God could kill me and my family if I don't deal with this. So, so how, how are you going to do it if, if you couldn't carry some stuff uh, to the temple? And how are you going to pay the temple tax? Because the, the only way you could pay tax, which you had to pay at the temple, was by using their special currency, their temple coin. But the only way you could get the temple coin was if you paid them with your money, and then you purchased a coin, and then paid the tax with the coin. It was a strange thing, but that's the way it worked. So the only way you could do that was by exchanging your money for that temple currency. But how are you going to do that if you don't have the appropriate stuff? And in the words of John Calvin, you're in luck, though. Um, That's a little seminary humor. Don't even worry about it. Because in that outdoor lobby into which Jesus steps in that courtyard, um, you guessed it, there were vendors. We already met them. 
Uh, They were authorized by the religious leaders to supply you with whatever you needed to do your appropriate business with God. So if you need a goat, because daddy been a bad boy, we got you. Give us some money, we'll give you a goat. If you need a bull, whoa, dude, don't know what your year has been like, but you can purchase one right here. We'll give that to you. You need some grain? Hey, third booth on the left. They'll take care of you. You need to, to change your money for the temple coin? We've got you covered. Okay, but you need to know what ended up happening was that uh, after a while of providing these supplies for these thousands and thousands of people, the more entrepreneurial religious leaders said, hmm, we have before us quite a lucrative opportunity. We could make some straight cash. Because after all, what else are these people going to do? They need what we have, and they're not going to leave without doing business with God. So I suggest, let's hike the prices. What are they going to do? Take their sin and go with them? They'll pay whatever we ask. Oh, man, let's hike the rate of exchange on that temple coin. And let's make some money. And these religious leaders, through their vendors, began to gouge the people. They became scalpers. Just completely taking advantage of these folks. When Jesus shows up, he walks up those stairs, he sees what's happening, he goes fierce judge, and he flips the tables because he hates exploitation he hates exploitation i mean you maybe you've never been introduced to judge jesus and you would like to it's easy exploit somebody whenever you create Or take advantage of someone's vulnerability to benefit yourself. You stir the judge in Jesus and he is not nice. That's what's happening in this scene. Whenever you take advantage of someone's vulnerability for your benefit. You stir the judge in Jesus. And I'm telling you, whatever happens next, it may be him. He would never. It may be him. I don't know. I can't tell you how he would deal with it, but I can assure you he will not ignore a single moment you exploit somebody. When you use somebody in a more vulnerable position for your own pleasure and benefit, Judge Jesus shows up. And 
These leaders who are supposed to know better, these leaders who are supposed to represent God are taking advantage of people in this vulnerable moment. And they say, you can get right with God for a price. You can give God his praise, but you've got to pay us. You've got to pay to pray. What else are you going to do? You have no choice. You can get your miracle, but you have to first purchase my oil by calling this special number on the screen. Hmm. These people in a position of power are holding spiritual peace and joy hostage until they get what they want. And Judge Jesus flips. And I think additionally, if you read the story, it says he flips a bench with some doves, which just adds a sad element to the story because doves in that particular context were like a concession offering. Um. They were for the poorest of poor who couldn't afford a goat. They couldn't afford a bull, so they were allowed to use a dove instead. And the religious leaders are like, we don't care. We are going to exploit whoever and whomever, including the poorest of poor, to benefit their bottom line. And you have to know, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not softened on his position on exploitation. And he would warn us, judgment alert, if you create or take advantage of someone's vulnerability to benefit yourself, Jeremiah 22 verse 13 says this, woe, woe to him, who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. When you see the word woe in the Bible, it is always a warning of pending judgment. And if you read the New Testament like we did last week with with Pastor Jeff, Jesus said woe a lot. You benefit from someone else's vulnerability, Jesus will say, whoa, I'm telling you there is a warning of his judgment. What he will do, I don't know, but he will not ignore it. Whenever you manipulate or you coerce someone to do you a sexual favor, especially because they're in a vulnerable position emotionally or physically. Whoa. See if he can get her to send you that little something because, man, I heard she's, she's feeling really lonely. What else is she going to do? She has no, she has no one else. Whoa. Whenever you pay someone less so that you can benefit more, whoa. Oh, you're undocumented. Well, clearly your choices are limited here. So, um... Why don't we just kind of under the table, I'll just pay you a little bit less. And what are you going to do? Go work somewhere else? You got to take what you can get. I'm not saying I'm going to report you, but, (laughs) you know, I might. 
judge Jesus never responds softly to that. Oh, let's make the kids do all the work. I mean, after all, that's why we had them. <laughs> and so you and I, we can recline like Greek gods. Service, children. Service, offspring. I said service or else. <laughs> Whenever we do that, okay. A lot of times when we do that, because I don't know, sometimes it's wisdom, I think. I don't know, but... I'm leaving myself a little room in that regard. But no, whenever we use our position of power to mistreat for our own benefit, Jesus says, whoa, when you threaten someone to get them to do something you want, that's not strong leadership, that's hijacking, that's extortion, that's exploitation. Oh, you're not going to do that? Then I'm not going to do this. Because I want you to do something for my benefit. Jesus would say, whoa, you bully someone at school because they have less friends or you're unkind to someone because they, they're less popular than you are? Whoa. But here's the, the, the biggest woe that I, I see when I read this passage. And it is squarely to the church. Uh, when, when we as followers of Jesus Christ tell anyone that they have to do anything extra to connect with God. Whew. When we tell or give the impression to anyone that they have to do that extra thing or pay that extra thing or quit that extra thing in order to connect with God. Woo! We become gougers. We become spiritual scalpers and it stirs the judge in Jesus. When we tell the spiritually poor that they can come in only if they first whatever. We have hiked the price of admission. And Jesus says, whoa. Don't do that. You have hiked the price preventing these people from gaining access to God in the temple. Whoa. Oh, you experience same-sex attraction. You've got to first quit that. Then the price of admission is you've got to change those things first. And I'm telling you, woe to the church. Oh, you, you don't go to church. Well, you've got to go to church more often first. And then you gain some access. Whoa. What did you just add to the equation? Oh, you got to stop swearing, man. I mean, if you cut down the swearing. That's why whenever you tell somebody you're a Christian, the first thing they do is they want to stop swearing. Oh, my bad on the language. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't think that's your biggest problem. But thank you, whatever. Because there's this belief like, oh man, ooh, 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 what's keeping me away is, is my language. And if I just change my language, then... Or if you stop, you know, smoking or drinking first. Whenever we communicate that, I think, whoa. And these things, when it's all said and done, don't benefit God. And they don't benefit those people. They benefit us. And our own sense of comfort, our own sense of what weirds us out, our own sense of what makes us feel a little bit unsafe. And so we create all of these extra taxes and we hike the price and we tell people what they have to be if they're going to come and gain access to God. And Jesus would say, whoa. To that, I'm just telling you, I think Jesus is flipping tables in many of our churches and evicting many of us. Or worse, he's just not moving like he might. And all of a sudden, the hot spot has a weak signal. And we come to do business with God and it's just, it's not fiber optic anymore. And I wonder if sometimes this Jesus judging his church is like, oh, you keep showing up. I kicked you all out because you think that you can go during the week and treat your kids this way and treat your coworkers this way and treat employees this way and tell people who are far from God that they have to pay this extra thing that makes you feel comfortable and vote a certain way before they come in. Whoa, I've dialed down. The hot spot a little bit. And I think that's what a lot of us may be experiencing. But I don't know that because he hasn't told me. But what I do know is I don't want his judgment to sit in our churches because of the ways that we may be taking advantage of or holding vulnerable people back. But there's one more thing I want us to see before we rap that triggers the fierce in Jesus. And I believe, um, man, it still does today as it shows up in our lives. After Jesus flips the tables, he actually explains one aspect of his anger, his fierceness. Matthew 21, verse 13, he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. Or worship. But you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is angry because these religious people are defiling the house of God. He's not just angered by the exploitation. He's angry because of their defilement. This place is designed to be a place where people meet with and make much of God. This place is a a place of prayer and worship. This place is designed for people to meet with and make much of God. But you're defiling it. By turning into this center of business and and exploitation. 
You're making it a place that makes much of you. And Jesus is furious because whenever we make or treat anything in the house of God as more important than the person or presence of God, whoa. We begin to defile this place, and Jesus is not about that. Now, to be clear, in our context, I think this applies primarily to this environment we're sitting in right now, to to the gathering of believers. Because I don't know if you knew, but you're a living stone, Peter says. And I'm a living stone. But when we come together, we form a spiritual house. A house for what? Well, it's a house that's a dwelling for God. It's no longer about the temple. It's no longer about this building in which we meet. It's about the people. And when these people come together, they become heaven's hot spot on earth. And he uniquely dwells among us. And he uniquely works among us. I will say this till the day I die. The place where I believe God does his greatest and most significant work is in the gathering of the church. That's why I think he's going to carry this thing on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever into eternity. This place is designed for us to uniquely meet with God in a way, by the way, you would never meet with him in your closet. To meet with God and to make much of him in this sense where all men, my house is assembled. And that's why it says where two or three are gathered in my name. Woo! I show up. That's why, by the way, church discipline is such a strong thing. When somebody is removed from this environment, this context, it's considered to be an absolute act of judgment. There is something special about this place. But make no mistake about the fact that this place exists for people to meet with and make much of God. And any time we flip the script on that and make something else more important and put ourselves at a higher place in that equation, woe to us. Now, the religious leaders, they continue to have the services. They didn't stop having services. They just made the business more important. They determined success by how much money did we take in this week. That became the priority to them. And I wondered when I read this, like, okay, but Jesus, I get it. These vendors who are selling this, but it says you kicked out the seller, the buyers as well. Not just the sellers and the buyers too. What did they do? And I think it's because they just accepted this way of functioning. They just accepted that this is the way it is. And so they were all in it together as far as Jesus was concerned. And um, I guess my concern is that if we're to survey the popular culture of church these days, would the presence and person of God be preeminent? If we're to survey, would it be about meeting with God and making much of him? Or... 
Have we taken on where we all just accept that, no, it's really about a bunch of other things. Matter of fact, it's really about making much of me. And what do I get out of it? And what do I like about a church? And I fear that if this is true, Jesus stands in our churches and he says, whoa. In a culture that I think leans so much towards commercializing and, and, and consumerizing the church experience. Whoa. When how big a church is numerically becomes more important than whether the people within that church are seeking the face of God. The judge in Jesus is stirred. And the fact that we all think it's okay. Popularity is not a spiritual virtue, y'all. When we treat branding like that's a thing, or how's our social media footprint, and how does our stuff look, and how do we look to the masses out there, and that becomes more important than whether God is smiling inside the house. Whoa. Man, I'm going to get real before we close, because again, we're all here, we might as well. Um, when we place the preacher... Above the presence of the living God. Woe and woe to the preacher. If I get up on this place and it becomes about how cool do I sound. And and how many people liked what I had to say. And that takes preeminence over. Am I holding up Jesus? Am I holding God up? Whoa, I need to evict myself from the church. Take a sabbatical at least. Whoa. We start to play these comparisons. Is our church better than this church? Is that church better than that church? Well, our church has this, and their church is that. I think our church is a little bit better. And we all just talk like this. How much money can we take in? Um, all right, I'm, I'm closing. I really am. Um, I think one of the things that concerns me most when it comes to this is how we have prioritized the amenities of the church and we've become so okay with this i'm leaving this church how come are they not making much of god oh no 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 that they worship god and they love his word and they're living on mission so what's the issue? Well, man, one time I went to church, and um, I'm telling you, uh, this lady at the door, she handed me the worship card upside down. I'm not about that. I didn't like that. Or one time I said something, and they said, hey, greet each other. I tried to greet someone, and right then he turned around. It's such an unfriendly place. I didn't like what it was doing for me. I didn't like what it was doing for me. And I'm telling you, when we consumerize and we make it about amenities, we put ourselves at the center of the house of God. And Jesus says, it's not about you. It's about the living God, y'all. 
And let me just say this so I can get it off my chest and be done with it. I'm not going to church. Why not? Well, my guy's not leading worship. <laughs> you know, oh, my, my, my preacher is not preaching. So, uh, what? For real? I'm just saying there is something about the temptation which we all experience. And let me not tell you any lies. I'm going to get off the stage and I'm going to go and I'm going to take like 25 more minutes than I need to evaluating. How did I do? And what did I? I shouldn't have said that. I should have said something else. Now people are going to think I'm not a great preacher. And then they're going to leave. And they're going to go to a different church. And then there'll be not enough people in our church. And our church won't look good. And then we'll be failures. And in all of that temptation, I am prone to forget this ain't about me. And it's not about the numbers. It's about is this going to be a place where we meet with our God and we make much of him? Jesus says, well, I don't know if you've met Jesus the judge. I don't know what he might be speaking to you and, and inviting you away from maybe it's places of, of exploitation that you would never think to call exploitation because that's not how you think of it. None of these religious leaders said, yeah, we've been exploiting the people. Now we're just trying to make some profit, that's all. Or maybe it's in, in an area where you are playing part in, in defiling the, the house of God and you would never say it that way. I come to take. I don't come to give anything because it's about me. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to give. Why would I do that? (laughs) No. And maybe he's inviting you into places of honoring him more beautifully. Um, You know, one of my favorite things about this story is the hope in this story. I love that Jesus flips tables and he gets mad and makes a mess in the temple like i read that i'm like that is awesome and that's why i'm so like still so stuffy from crying during our singing portion (laughs) you know uh man there's no shadow you won't light up there's no mountain you won't climb up there's no table you won't flip coming after me Have you ever realized that he is flipping the table because he wants nothing to stand between you and his father connecting? This is the passion of a savior who wants his close. His judgment is not because it's vindictive and he wants to get rid of us. His judgment is because he wants to remove any obstacle that could possibly stand in the way. And I wonder if he wasn't mad because he knows I am four days away from paying the only admission price necessary for people to come in and have connection with God. And now you are putting all these obstacles in their way. And then he's going to go to the cross, by the way, and he's going to flip that thing. Then he's going to go to the grave and he's going to flip that thing as well. Whatever stands in the way of you connecting with God is what he's most passionate about. And so whatever else you heard this morning, can I just invite you to that? This is a savior who's passionate regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done. He has made every provision for you to come to him if you would simply say, I've messed up. And I just want to pay, no paying, I paid. I just want you to believe. And ask 
And I wonder if for some of you, you've maybe never known the forgiveness of Jesus. And that's the invitation. He's saying, listen, regardless of what you've done, you and I are going to meet. But you ultimately don't want to meet me as judge. You want to meet me as savior and forgiver. And that's what I'm offering to you right now. And so, Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to us in the ways that you know we need to to hear. Thank you for Jesus who flipped tables and flipped sin and flipped death in order to make a way for us to come to you. What incredible love. Help us to not just receive and accept that love, but help us to live in it. And help us to be vigilant in living lives that are pleasing to him. Realizing he's savior, but he is also judge. He's not softened, and yet he's so quick to forgive when we come to him. So give us the grace to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.